science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about being in the limelight. Being a professional storyteller is kind of like being famous, but without any of the good parts. Everyone knows all your business, but you're not exactly hanging out on George Clooney's yacht. You just get weird emails from people you went to high school with and strangers who want you to give them feedback on their slam poetry. So it's not exactly, you know, A-list stardom. But then for scientists, attention and media coverage for your work can be complicated. (laughs) And I'll leave it to our storytellers today to tell you more about that. Our first story is from Laura Kehoe. It was recorded in October 2018 at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver. The theme that night was Catalyst. As a scientist, um, I study the ways to conserve the most species for the least amount of money. But unfortunately, that's not what I'm most well known for. So it's 2011, and I've got my first ever conservation job. And I'm thrilled because I get to study wild chimpanzees in the Republic of Guinea. So this isn't Papua New Guinea. It's not Equatorial Guinea. It's the Guinea you've probably never heard of. It's in West Africa, and it's beside the Ivory Coast. And it's home to one of the last strongholds of West African chimpanzees in the world. And so, super excited. I get out there, um, but it's not smooth sailing. So I can model chimp population dynamics pretty well from my desk, but it turns out I can't even actually walk properly through this savanna. So it's covered in thorns. I'm covered in thorns. Every day, I'm like ripping up my clothes on these thorns. I'm covered in duct tape, actually, because I don't have the time to sew the clothes back together. Um, And the group that I'm supposed to be leading, I'm more often than not because of this found at the back. But on this particular day, I'm happy because I get to catch up to the group because they've stopped at this clearing in the bush. And our guide, Mamadou Aliouba, he's a local chief of the village and farmer, he notices some markings in the bark of a tree. And they're basically scratches. There's pieces of bark missing from the tree. And some others in the group think that it's just wild pigs. Others think it's teenage boys messing around. But Aliu has a hunch. And this guy, he can spot chimp hair on the forest floor. He can spot chimps kilometers away with his bare eyes that I can't find with my fancy schmancy binoculars. He even found chimp pee once on the forest floor under a chimp nest in a leaf. This guy, he was incredible. And so when he has a hunch, you listen to that hunch. So myself and Lucy, who's the other foreign researcher in the team, we look at each other and we think, yeah, let's put a camera here. So we have these camera traps. And basically, they record any movement in front of them. And they're handy for spying on wildlife for that reason, because they don't intrude on the wildlife. So we put this camera trap up on one of the trees, and we leave it for a couple of weeks. 
And I always get excited when we leave a camera trap because who knows what we might find. Nobody's ever studied this area before. So maybe we find a new species. Maybe we find a completely new behavior to science. But these are total daydreams because actually what we generally find is just tree branches swaying in the wind, setting off the motion sensor, or cows walking past who just love licking the camera lens. So we have all these close-up videos of like just tongues, just like back and forth, leaving the whole thing completely covered in saliva and like not usable for the rest of the time it's out there. Anyway, we get back to this spot, to our mystery tree, and we pick up the camera card and we get back to camp excitedly and we put it in the laptop to see what we found. And what we find is actually kind of cool. So... This big male chimp, he ambles up into view. And you know he's male because he has these huge balls, like knocking back and forth. Chimps have massive balls. You should just look it up when you get home. It's impressive. Um, three times the weight of human balls. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. So he pauses in front of our tree and he picks up this huge rock and he goes, and he flings the rock at the tree. Bam, it smacks the tree, it falls down. Question answered, that's what's going on. And we're shocked, we're like, what the hell is this? We get shivers down our spine. Our guide is standing there like smiling, proud of himself that he was correct. But we don't know what the hell this is about. And you might be thinking, all right, I've seen monkeys throw stones in the zoo. What's the big deal? Well, actually, when we told the rest of the researchers and everybody began searching for this, we found that it was happening at these distinct sites only in West Africa, only in four countries in West Africa. And the chimps were revisiting these same trees and doing this again and again. And only at specific trees in the landscape, so not just any old tree. It was very strange. So what are they up to? Well, the first thing that we thought was maybe it's to do with a male display. So male displays are all about looking big, looking cool. And so maybe picking up a heavy rock, making a loud noise, that's cool. It's going to impress the lady chimps. Or maybe it's long distance communication. So chimps actually use, they drum on the roots of large buttress trees. And that drumming travels long distance and it's like a kind of a Morse code. So others in the group might change their direction or they might meet up at a certain time and place. So that's pretty cool in itself. And in this area, there weren't many large routes for them to do that on. So maybe they were doing this as another form of long distance communication. But the thing is, we got footage of juvenile chimps just quietly placing stones inside the hollow tree or at the base of it. And so it doesn't really fit with those theories, right? So other researchers, they think maybe it's to do with landmarking. So maybe we get these piles of stones at the base of trees to indicate a chimp's territory. And this is an important stage in human history, and it was how we used to landmark things. So maybe chimps are doing the same thing. But we also have footage of a female chimp with a juvenile placing the stones in these piles. And it's weird for a female with her kid to be out in the boundary of the territory because that's actually a dangerous spot to be. That's where fights break out between different chimp communities. So it's a mystery, right? We don't know what it is, but we describe the behavior. Over 80 other researchers work really hard on this, and together we publish the scientific paper on it. 
And when the paper comes out, I think, I really care about science communication, so I should write something about this because I want to bring more attention to our guide, Aliu. Without him, we definitely would not have found this. And I also want to bring attention to chimp conservation because the chimps are in trouble in the wild. And so it's a good platform to, to bring some attention towards, towards conservation. So I write the blog and I talk about Aliu and I talk about the behavior and what it could mean. And I also talk about something that I learned from the other researchers on this, the anthropologists, that actually the piles of stones, they also resemble um, human sacred sites where humans would create these kinds of stone piles and they would form um, these special sites in human culture around the world. And so I put a line in my article and I say, maybe what we've found here is the first evidence of chimps creating a kind of sacred site. That was a mistake. It's <laughs> a big mistake. So the article, it gets republished, like almost immediately, in many different news sites. And what you don't know when you see an article online is actually the editors can change the title. So my article gets reposted, but the title changes to, is this evidence of spirituality in the wild? <laughs> And it culminates when a friend of mine sends me an article in the Daily Mail. That's a widely read tabloid in the UK. Front page Daily Mail, across the top. Is this proof chimps believe in God? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting in my office and I open the article and I can like... It's funny now, but it was not funny at the time. I'm sitting there looking at it and I can feel like my heartbeat just pumping in my eardrums as I read this because I see my name. They've actually pretended to interview me for this. And they say, for many scientists, they have a professional dread of foisting human ideas on non-humans. And the idea of religious animals is about as far-fetched as you can get. Yet Kyo, that's me, stuck to her guns. <laughs> and then they put that one line completely out of context, as if I'd said it, as if I believe that chimps are religious. And I, I'm Irish, right? I know. But I'm not even religious. And I definitely don't think chimps are religious. But this is how it appears. And I start to get really worried. I'm coming towards the end of my PhD, and I kind of like to have a job after my PhD. And I'm imagining future employers Googling my name, and the whole first page of Google search results is covered in this madness. And so I think, okay, I need to clear my name. I need to clarify the science, and I need to bring the attention back to chimp conservation. And so I do more interviews with journalists. I talk on podcasts. I try to get the word out, you know, and I talk about the behavior and I talk about what it could be, what it might not be, how it's most likely communication, but we simply don't know. And we constantly underestimate other species. It is a mystery, right? And of course, they then cut that down to, we simply don't know, we constantly underestimate other species, and then use that bloody line again from the original blog. And so it spreads further. I get 
emails from French, Spanish friends that have seen it in their news. You know, le religieux chimpanzee. I don't know what this is. <laughs> but it was just like spreading. And it was really, I was just, I was completely ashamed. I mean, science is supposed to be about the truth, right? And then I was doing the exact opposite here. And so I should have written something, you know, tried to clear my name. But I knew that some kind of piece all about, oh, no, I'm, I'm misunderstood. It would be read like a fraction of the percentage of the original news. And the truth really dawned on me that sensationalist clickbait news like this, it spreads faster and it's more memorable than any other type of information. And so I basically just cower away. I don't know what to do, so I kind of just shrink back. And my big hope here is that some religious millionaire comes across the story, somehow believes it, and decides to donate their life's worth to chimp con conservation. <laughs> But not very likely, right? But I keep trying. I keep trying to communicate my research and to do my best because these chimps are in trouble. They've lost 80% of their population in the past 25 years and they will go extinct in the wilds if things carry on in this way. In our lifetime, they will disappear along with all of the amazing things that they do and all of the other species out there too that are also in trouble. So I do keep trying because it's too important to me not to. And I'm slightly better at it now because I've learned the hard way. But if you do hear about spiritual salmon or killer whale cults around Vancouver, you'll know who to blame. Thank you. <laughs> That was Laura Kehoe. Laura is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia and University of Victoria, where she's busy developing a cost-effective conservation plan for over 100 species of concern in the Fraser River estuary. Laura's research has the overall goal of identifying pathways to balance human resource use with the conservation of biodiversity. To do this, she develops and applies approaches grounded in spatial statistics, spatial ecology, and conservation decision science. Our next story today is from Skylar Bear. It was recorded in October 2018 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was bonds. I'm driving back to my house, and across my phone, there's an alert that flashes, and I see the words Colbert Rapport. And I am excited and anxious at the same time. And when I get home, I open my laptop and I open my email. And what's weird is the alert is from my blog email, and no one reads my blog. <laughs> and then I keep reading, and it's from a producer or person claiming to be a producer from the Colbert Report. And I immediately Google her name, and she is, in fact, a real person. And she had been reading this story uh, in the Associated Press and other news articles about this man who had lost some buckets of mollusk guts. Um, and my blog post was the only thing that exists on the Internet that clarified that they were specifically uh, samples for me, a graduate student, that a fisherman named Andy Mays had lost. 
And those samples were actually specifically scallop gonads. And only a few days prior, I think, um, I had been sitting in a parking lot at the Somsville One Stop, which is a gas station in Mount Desert Island uh, on the coast of Maine, waiting to meet up with the one and only Andy Mays. And this is the first time I'd embarked on a cooperative research project. And cooperative or collaborative research is when you as a scientist work with a non-scientist on a research project. And Andy is this tall, lanky, strong fisherman with with these glasses. And he is absolutely like one of the toughest guys I've met. He goes scuba diving for scallops in the middle of winter when it's 30 to 50 degrees because that's when you harvest them. And he always seems like he's scheming and he's a little bit like Wiley Coyote, um, but somehow comes through like the roadrunner every time. And uh, and I'm not really sure how I feel about uh, if I'm ever going to get my samples that I trusted him with back uh, because he's such a schemer. Um, and so I see him in the parking lot and I go, Andy, I'm here. Uh, where are the samples? And he's like, well, I put them in your car. And I was like, you no, no, you did not put them in my car. Um, and he points to this now empty parking space across the lot. And he's like, well, I put them in that car. <laughs> and the car is gone. And so is my confidence in this collaborative research project. <laughs> and, um, and so I, <laughs> I am back at my computer, you know, absolutely excited uh, and horrified and, and wondering what I should do about about this producer. I mean, the Colbert Report, it's my parents' favorite show. It's my favorite show. It's just, it's amazing. I'm a second year grad student. What the hell do I have to lose? Um, but what is the university gonna think? What is Andy gonna think? The university, none of the higher ups, including my advisor, director of the Marine Center at the time, the PR department, no one really wants me to do it. They want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. But that's okay. Cause again, I'm a second year grad student. I don't have anything to lose. Um, <laughs> But I really care about what Andy thinks. And although Andy and I have a passion for the scallop fishery, we have a lot of differences. Um, he's a very devout Catholic Christian. And um, I am a Unitarian Universalist, which is like being part of a spiritual book club that meets once every few years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he has conservative political leanings. I'm pretty sure he supported Governor LePage in Maine, both twice, which, for those that don't know, is sort of the original Donald Trump, but govern, governs Maine. Um, and I'm more part of the group of people in Maine who supported ranked choice voting in reaction to Governor LePage getting uh, elected twice. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then finally, he believed that climate change was a hoax. And I know uh, that climate change is real. So asking him, the person he is and the group of people that he's from, to go on a liberal media TV show that makes fun of people like him and ask him to be the butt of that joke is a really big ask. That's a big ask. And I ask him and he's like, oh, it's going to be great, Skylar. I think this is a great idea. Like, you think it's a good idea. I think it's a great idea. I was class clown in college and high school. To, and I, this is this is it. This is my jam. 
So the producers come, they film. It's glorious. Everyone who doubted me at the university now love me. I'm getting emails from deans I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> and there we are on this TV show, Andy and me representing Mainers, scientists, fishermen, and invertebrates everywhere. <laughs> but after this grand adventure, um, and where really Andy was the only person who truly believed in me and really upped my confidence in science communication. We kind of went our different ways. He and his sort of conservative fisherman world, as I perceived, and my liberal scientist, overeducated uh, world. And I kind of felt guilty. I felt like I had somehow used him for professional gain, for fame, although no fortune. And my guilt really deepened a few years after that when I had found out that he had been diagnosed with cancer and I hadn't really seen him and I was kind of ashamed that I hadn't, hadn't known. And so I call him and his wife up, um, Michelle. I say, is there anything I can do? You know, and he said, oh, well, I mean, I have some chemotherapy treatment. Why don't you come visit me and talk to me till, till it kicks in because usually you fall asleep. And I go and see him, and he's still the strong, um, devout Catholic Andy with his faith in God that I, that I had met. And he's, he's just, his spirit is so strong. He looks strong. He's, he's great. And I really have faith in that moment, seeing him, that he's going to do just fine. And for a 48-year-old man, he was in amazing shape. And he was continuing to scuba dive even while on chemotherapy treatment. He's tough. And then the next year, I got married, um, and my husband and I decided to have a party where we invited everyone we knew, uh, mostly so people wouldn't yell at us about being exclusive. <laughs> and we did a Facebook invite, and I invited Andy, and Andy lives three hours away. I don't expect him to necessarily show up, and he, he gets so excited, and he messages me, and he's like, I'm so excited, Skylar. I love weddings. I can't wait to come to your party. You know, I'll bring lobsters. I'll go lobstering and I'll bring some and, and it'll be great. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really great, Andy, but no pressure. Like it's a long trip and that's a lot to ask. So I'm not really expecting to see him. But that day, a couple hours in the party, he shows up in sort of a cloud of dust with his, his truck coming up the driveway. And, and he's got 20 lobsters, at least, that he went fishing for that morning. And he drove three hours from Mount Desert Island all the way to our house with these lobsters. And then he boils them outside. He boils all of them and cooks them for all of us. And he finally comes inside. And I hadn't really seen him with his coat and hat off yet. And he's smiling. But as he takes his coat off, I notice that he's probably lost about 50 pounds. And he doesn't have any hair. He doesn't have hair on his head. He doesn't have eyebrows. He doesn't have eyelashes. And the chemotherapy is sort of started taking a toll on him. And he stays late. Um, everyone's left. And so it's just me and him talking. And, and I'm like, how are you? How are you doing? And he's like, you know, like chemo's kicking my ass. But, you know, I'm hanging in there. And I'm still going scuba diving every day. And I was like, scuba diving? That seems dangerous on chemotherapy, like on a good day. And he's like, well, when I'm underwater, it's the only place I can forget that I have cancer. It's my life. And he's like, well, how are you doing? And so I start complaining about grad school and grant writing and not having a career with funding and, 
And there's this actually collaborative research project that we're going to write a grant proposal for again. And actually letters from fishermen would be really helpful. He's like, you know what, Skylar, it sounds like a great idea. I'll write you. I'll write you a letter. And I'm like, okay, Andy, that sounds great. And he drives back that night and I was like, do you need to stay over? He's like, well, the chemo doesn't let me sleep. So this is actually good. So he messages me later that night and he's like, oh, such a perfect night. You know, the sky was clear. The stars were out. The moon was bright. Thank you for inviting me to your party. It was just it was the best time. And next year, my husband and I are coming back from a trip to Iceland. And as soon as the plane lands, I turn on my phone and I have all these text messages and some of them are from Michelle, Andy's wife, informing me that Andy is now in hospice. Uh, the cancer had spread to his brain and spinal cord, and they didn't know until just now. And I, I message her back because she has said, you're one of the people that Andy would like to see, you know, while he's in hospice. And I'm like, is it too late? Did I miss it? I've been gone for 10 days. She's like, no, 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 no. You know, you have time. And, and so that weekend... I drive up to Mount Desert Island and and I come to see him in his in his hospice room and his house and he's physically just sort of a shadow of his former self but he's still in there. I can see his eyes working and and the cancer doesn't really let him talk and it's so hard because Andy was such a talker. He just loved to talk and so I'd tell him a little bit about Iceland and he'd have a question but he couldn't say it and he you know, he just couldn't couldn't get it out and he'd get frustrated. I spent a couple hours there and some other friends came and went. Um, when I left, I said, I'll see you later, okay? Because I don't know what to say to my friend who's dying. Do I say goodbye forever? That's not very comforting. A couple days after Christmas, which was just a few weeks after that, Andy passed in his sleep. And uh, he got to live through Christmas, which was his favorite holiday. And so my husband and I decided to go to the memorial service, three-hour drive, and it's at a Freemason's Lodge, and I didn't even know Andy was a Freemason, and, and I still don't really know what a Freemason is. <laughs> and we go in, you know, there's like a hundred people crammed in this tiny building, and um, we, you know, we, we say our condolences to Michelle, Andy's wife, and we don't know anyone, so we're just standing around awkwardly. Um, and and this man that looks kind of like Andy, but actually a lot shorter, and he looks like he's in his 70s, he comes running up to me, and he goes, Skylar, like he said my name a million times. He's like, it's so good to meet you. And he's like, I'm Andy's dad. And he just starts, he's just like, that Colbert clip was just so funny and so amazing and <laughs> and we love it. And and the thing is, is like that that clip, apparently, like everyone in Andy's life had watched that like a million times. <laughs> He's like, and I followed on Facebook, like how he went down to the wedding and he brought all those lobsters for you. And and this guilt that I had been carrying around that I had somehow used him for professional gain or whatever sort of started to melt away because I had realized that I had given Andy adventures. And that's who Andy was. He he lived for adventures. That's what he had lived for. He lived for that and making new friends. They said, um, the only friends Andy, you know, you're not you're his friend um, unless you haven't met him yet. That's what his dad said. 
And so, so that Colbert clip, that silly, stupid little piece, was quintessential Andy. And it was the way his family liked to remember him. And it was the way that I liked to remember him as my friend in that Somsville one-stop gas station who put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, Skylar, I fuck this shit up all the time. (laughs) But we're going to figure out and fix it, and maybe we'll make some new friends along the way. Thank you. That was Skylar Bear. Skylar, I am very proud to say, is a rowing producer for the Story Collider, as well as a marine biologist, a storyteller, and a science communicator. She completed her PhD in the secret sex lies of scallops, a subject that, as you heard, landed her on the Colbert Report in 2013. She's an alum of the D.C.-based Sea Grant NALS Marine Policy Fellowship Program, and currently she is a National Academy of Sciences NRC Postdoctoral Research Associate at the NOAA Milford Laboratory as well as the Secretary of the Ecological Society of America's Communication and Engagement Section. Her heart, husband, house, two dogs, and grumpy cat all reside in Maine. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation. End of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Kayla Glenn, Armin Mordazavi, Shane Hanlon, and Miriam Zaringhollum. The podcast is produced by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Fox Cabaret and Beer Baron Tavern for hosting these shows, and shout out to George Clooney, who I am sure is a listener. I'm still waiting on my invite, George. Thanks for listening.